0: Amen. Father, thank you for being so very good to us, for being kind to us, for your grace toward us. Now, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to see your word in ways we haven't before. I pray you would give us ears to hear the things that, quite honestly, are difficult to hear. Father, I pray that from this group, from this morning, there would rise up a, a number of people who are so fully committed to Jesus Christ that Carroll County and beyond is turned upside down for him. Lord, fill our eyes full. Of Jesus, and may we follow his pattern, his example. May we understand exactly what it is you've called us to, and exactly what it is you've saved us from. For it's in Jesus' good and wonderful name I pray, amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Take your Bibles, go to First Peter chapter 4. First Peter chapter 4, before I... Before I read the, uh, the text this morning, let me, um, <laughs> let me ask you a question. I don't know if you've ever had uh, somebody give you directions someplace and you weren't really sure where you were going, and so they're trying to lay it out for you. They're trying to explain to you what to expect. Uh, you know the destination, or at least where you want to end up, and as they're laying out the uh, directions for you, they, they give you this little heads up like, and I know, I know, it's going to seem like you're going the wrong way at this point. But just continue on, because it's going to bring you where you want to go. A um, couple of illustrations that there's times where you're, you're traveling northeast to get to Massachusetts from here, where my mom lives, you'd be traveling that way, and, and suddenly you've got to get on a road that says, you're going to now go south for about four miles. Like That doesn't make any sense. Why would I want to go south? Well, because actually the most efficient way to get there is to get on a different tollway instead of going through the back ways. Or Or locally, there's this one spot where, uh, a drive that we've made a little more often now, coming from Eldersburg to Randallstown, because uh, that's where my, my son and his wife live, is Randallstown. That still sounds weird. Sorry. Um, my son and his bride, uh, they're there. And so when you're going from Eldersburg to Randallstown, there's a way you want to go over the Liberty Reservoir. Maybe some of you are familiar with it. But there's one point on that road where you're like, I'm not driving over that bridge. That, that bridge is sketchy. But you know, you got to go over that bridge to make it to your, your final destination. What, what we're talking about this morning is exactly that. There is a path that we are supposed to be on, and there are times you're going to look and be like, I don't think this is right. And what Peter does for us, he says, it's right. And so you need to have your expectations adjusted. First Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 1, he says this, Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves also with the same understanding, because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin, in order to live their remaining time in the flesh, no longer for human desires, but for God's will. For there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carrying on in unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. They're surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living and they slander you, they will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was also preached to those who are now dead, so that although they might be judged in the flesh according to human standards, they might live in the spirit according to God's standards. What Peter says right out of the gate is, you must be prepared to think like Jesus. He says, arm yourself with this understanding. Arm yourself... With this thinking, the idea arm yourself is a military idea. It means to prepare or to make ready. And what Peter is saying to these people, his friends, what he's saying to you, is be prepared for the suffering that will come as a normal part of the average Christian life. Be prepared with that same understanding of Jesus Christ, that same thinking of Jesus Christ. That's not a a behavioral change. It's not a, we're going to start acting like this. It is a more fundamental. It's, It's at this very basic attitude, and understanding and thinking. And he says, what I want you to do is think like Jesus did through suffering. Well, how did Jesus think through suffering? Jesus understood that the path to freedom is through the forest of suffering. He understood where he was going, but on the way, you look around to the side of the road and it looks a little hinky. That bridge looks like it's going to let loose at any time. Jesus' thought process, his understanding was that the path to freedom was through the forest. Of suffering, you see that in a couple of different ways. You see that in the fact that he would not allow comfort to be his greatest good. One of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible is Mark chapter one. You get introduced to Jesus and his ministry. He's baptized. Um, he he calls some disciples who are just amazed that Jesus would know their name. I mean, there's there's just so much there. And then he begins to teach, and people hear him teaching, and they hear him teaching with great authority. He's not quoting other people. He's actually taking the Old Testament law and he is unpacking it for them. And they're like, man. Have we ever heard somebody teach with such authority, such passion, such wisdom? And in the middle of his teaching, this demon-possessed man comes running into the room, and Jesus is like, "Again, I, I gotta be careful with my sanctified imagination, which oftentimes remains unsanctified." Um, the demon-possessed man comes running into the room, and you can see him. Jesus go, Psh! "Come out of him!" The demon flees, and the people's minds—you think they were blown when he was teaching with authority. They see him cast out a demon. They're like. What kind of man is this? And they head to Simon Peter's house, who Simon, Simon Peter's mother-in-law is sick with a fever, and Jesus walks in, and, and, and basically you get the idea that the, the, the family is like, sorry, we, there's no snacks. She's been in bed all day with this fever. It's been awful. And Jesus walks over and extends a hand and says, rise up. And the fever immediately leaves her. Then the town finds out that Jesus is there, and it says that they begin bringing all of the sick and demon-possessed, to the home. And Jesus begins casting out the demons and healing the sick, and he, and he heals many, and he, and he, and he, and he uh, casts out many demons. And and nightfall comes, and the people leave, and, and everybody goes to bed. And first thing the next morning, the people return to get more of a show. And what they find is Jesus is missing. Where's Jesus? Where did he go? The disciples are looking for him. They can't find him. Now, <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, being on this side of the Scripture, and being able to read Mark chapter 1, we know that Jesus rose up early in the morning, and he went into the wilderness to spend time with his Father, to spend time praying. The disciples are just insects. They can't find him, and everybody's looking for Jesus. I mean, this is a moment, right? His popularity is soaring. This is when things could go really well. I mean, they could take polls, and he's going to win for sure. And they go running into the wilderness. They finally find Jesus. The word that they use in the Greek is they were looking For Jesus, intensely, that idea between looking is the same word that is used to hunt. Intent to do harm. I don't think the disciples are going to go work Jesus over, but I think they wanted to show up and be like, what are you doing to us? You're putting us in such a terrible position. And they come up and you hear these words that every single one of us hears. And for some of us, it just makes our spine do funny things. For me, this is soul crushing. They find Jesus and they say, everybody's looking for you. Don't you hate that? Moms, don't you hate that? Mom! Mom! Where are you? Mom! 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 And Mom's hiding in the corner somewhere. Similarly, Jesus is like, no, no, no. Everybody's looking for you, Jesus. This is our opportunity. Let's go back down there. Let's heal more. Let's teach more. Let's see the people rise in acceptance of you. This is amazing. You are being elevated in front of our very eyes. And Jesus looks at them and says, oh, everybody's looking for me to go do the same thing again? Well then, let's go to the neighboring villages so that I can preach there too. That's why I came. I didn't come for it to be easy. I came to do the will of the Father who sent me. You see this happening in John chapter six when, when Jesus stands before five thousand men. That doesn't count the women and children. So there's probably seventy five hundred to ten thousand, or sorry, seventy five, yeah, to ten thousand people there. And, and they're hungry, and Jesus gives them food from five loaves, two fish—a little boy's lunch. And there's enough to feed the crowd to capacity. They're, they're absolutely filled full. They have leftovers. They bring them back to Jesus. And, and Jesus can overhear the whispers of that crowd after he has fed them so miraculously. This is the one. Let's get him. He's, this is the one that can that be our leader. He could be our king. Instant success. Instant reception from the people. And Jesus overhears them. And he says in John chapter 6, Therefore, when Jesus realized... They were about to come and take him by force to make him king. He withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So the thinking of Jesus I know I am not here just to let comfort be what guides me. I'm not here to take easy. What I'm here to do is do what God has called me to do, what the Father has instructed me to do. And in John chapter 10, verse 18, he says, nobody lays, takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down, and I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. It's not about doing what was easy. It's about doing what the Father has called me to do. He was completely committed to the purpose of the Father. You see that in that gorgeous prayer in Garden of Gethsemane, don't you? It, it, it's, it, it's so human. Father, if there's any other way, if you would be willing, take this cup away from me that's what i want but nevertheless not my will but yours it's not about comfort it's not about what he wanted he was committed fully to what the father wanted for him jesus understood that the path to freedom led through the forest of suffering and we see him suffer mightily don't we we see him arrested Illegally dragged away to, to, to be uh, uh, put before people who make false accusations at him. We see him spit on, cursed at, punched, slapped, whipped, beaten. And what First Peter 2 tells us, if you remember a few weeks back. Verse 21, this is the example Jesus left for you. Follow in his steps. He did not commit sin. In the middle of all of that suffering he did not commit sin. He no deceit was found in his mouth. He continued to speak nothing but truth. When he was insulted, he didn't respond like we do today by hurling back insults. When he suffered, he didn't threaten them. You know who I am? You know what I'm going to do to you? I mean, if anybody had the right to say those things, it was Jesus, right? But he refused to threaten back. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Why? Because Jesus knew that suffering was a part of God's plan. And that's where you and I need our thinking dramatically changed. I think many of us struggle to understand suffering as Christians because deep down inside we really think we're entitled to a comfortable life. Don't we? Maybe it's just me. Maybe you should fire me then the one guy in the room, the pastor, is like, it's me. I'm a sinner. You you may not believe the name it and claim it gospel that false gospel that's out there, the prosperity gospel, you may not believe it outright, but you slip into a subtle version of it over and over again when you begin to believe that if you just read your Bible enough, if you just spend enough time in prayer, if you just go to church enough, if if you just do enough good things, if you're just kind enough to your neighbors, if you start to believe those things, basically what ends up happening is you you get to the self-entitlement where it's like, you know, God owes me a pretty happy life. The problem is when you begin to believe that lie, if not consciously, but somehow deep inside of your soul, when suffering comes, and it will You're devastated. Because you have no way to fit that into your thinking. And your faith takes this tremendous hit. Man, I prayed. I gave. I read my Bible. I was so very kind. I believe in Jesus, so I don't understand why this is happening to me. I thought I was on God's team. Actually, what you thought was God was on your team. And Peter says, stop you must arm yourself with the same attitude, the same understanding, the same thinking that you see in your Savior, Jesus Christ, who understood that the path to freedom was through the forest of suffering. And in that suffering, his attitude was this, my Father can be trusted. No matter how difficult it gets, no matter how hard it is, that's what I love about the Garden of Gethsemane, as he prays this great Passionate human prayer to God. God, this is not what I want. This is not what I want. I want another way, something else. But what's greater than that is what you want. So I'm going to entrust that what you have is far better. So I'm going to put myself into your hands that the idea in chapter two of entrusting himself is a continuous action. I'm going to continue to hand myself over to you, hand myself over to you, hand myself over to you. I'm going to keep giving you my situation because you can be trusted. Jesus was fully aware of the fact that earthly justice may never come for him. But he trusted himself into the hands of the one, the the all-knowing one, the all-powerful one, who is going to accomplish his perfect plan, which is greater than earthly justice. Do you actually believe that? If we're prepared, if we arm ourselves with the same thinking of Jesus Christ, what's going to happen is you're going to find yourself committed to living the different life like you never have before. That, that's what, so here we are 15 minutes in, and I made it through the first half of verse 1, so it's not looking good, hang on. Um, <laughs> so the end of verse 1, because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin. So there's a point in Second Peter where Peter um, mocks the Apostle Paul, he says, you know the Apostle Paul, his readings sometimes are so difficult to understand. When I get to heaven, I'm like, Peter, you have so much room to talk, bro. The one who suffers is finished with sin. What, what does that mean? Well, I can tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean you will never sin again. It doesn't mean you've gotten to a place where, boop, done, I am perfect now. Sinless perfection, which, which there is a, 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 um, an arm of theology that teaches that, that you can achieve sinless perfection before you die. Um, there was a man, this is two weeks in a row, I get to use a Charles Haddon Spurgeon example, which is awesome. Um, there was a man in Spurgeon's church who believed he, was, he had reached, attained that level, where he was now sinless. And so he had, had this conversation bragging about his sinless state, which is ironic, but he was bragging about his sinless state to Spurgeon, and Spurgeon was intrigued by it, so he invited the man home for dinner. He said, why, why don't you come to dinner with me? Let's sit down. Let's have a conversation and talk this through. And so Spurgeon's sitting at dinner with the man, and they're they're eating. And, and during the meal, during the conversation, the man just continues to repeat his claim over and over and over again. I am sinless. I am done with sin. I am without sin. And in the middle of the man saying those things, Spurgeon just very calmly reaches over and grabs his cup of ice water, and throws it in the guy's face, and the dude begins to curse a blue streak. <laughs> Spurgeon just kind of smirks at him. He says, ah, oh, you see, the old man within you isn't dead. He just fainted for a little while and needed a cup of refreshing water to wake him again. <laughs> now, we, we, we know it's not that we're done with sin. First John chapter 1 says this, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. I would Not that I want to change Scripture at all, but my commentary on this part of Scripture would be, if we say we have no sin, the only people we are deceiving is ourselves. So that's not what what Peter is, is saying here. What he's saying is, suffering is a type of proving ground of sorts. He's saying when you suffer... And you cling to Jesus. You cling to and continue to entrust yourself like Jesus did. You follow his example. The one who suffers in the flesh has made the decision to be finished with sin. I am no longer running back to that. It's way sweeter to cling to the one who can be entrusted than, than to continue to run to those things that, that trip me up. I am I'm done with sin. I'm done running to the things that I used to run to. I am turning my back on those things. I'm no longer going after my ways. I'm going after God's ways, that what uh, verse 2 says, in order to live the remaining time in the flesh no longer for human desires, my ways, but for God's will. So you're no longer living like the rest of the world as suffering has purified you and tried you, pointed you in the path to freedom through the forest of suffering. Verse, verse 3 is fascinating to me. Peter says, listen, enough's enough. Enough's enough. You've had enough time spent in doing what the old life used to do. And he lists out this this, um, vice list, this list of sins. And I would say that those probably are not meant to be a specific list that we should unpack, but instead we should take them generally this morning. And The way I want to do that is, is just tell you that what those do is picture the world that Peter lived in, and so if you were to take out a list for today, what would our world be described as? Actually, you could use many of the same words probably. Our culture today, and especially in America, is not marked by the values and morals, ethics that Jesus taught and lived and calls us to in any way shape or form. So I was having a conversation with a random stranger Go figure. That doesn't happen a whole lot these days. But um, this week I had the opportunity to have a conversation with a a random stranger. And we were talking about being a pastor and what the world looks like and how things are going. And he made a comment to me that I I let slide because because I was being kind. But you're going to pay for it. (laughs) Um, No, he, he made a comment. He's like, but you know, I just don't get it. We're a Christian nation. I would strongly push against that statement for two reasons. One. God only had one nation, and it was Israel. Sorry. I'm not sorry. (laughs) Second reason. At best, America is nominally Christian. At best, we use the word well. In fact, what America has become is one of the most Hedonistic, narcissistic, moralistic, and deistic countries in the history of mankind. Hedonistic. We, we, we will seek pleasure and avoid suffering at all costs. We are so overwhelmingly narcissistic, and it's not just a single person. It is every single American. We are wrapped up in narcissism. We have this excessive Need for admiration. We completely disregard the feelings of other people. We have an inability to handle any criticism and we have a complete sense of entitlement. That's the definition of narcissism. That is our country. We are moralistic. The idea is our level of spirituality doesn't raise any higher than I just need to be better than you. That's our level of spiritualism and spirituality in America. As long as I'm better than, then I'm okay. Deism? Oh, baby. We are one of the most deistic places, and we'll never claim it, but here, let me picture it for you. Similar to, I'm going to live however I want to live starting this afternoon. I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to drink as much as I want. I'm going to smoke as much as I want. I'm going to smoke whatever I want. I'm going to scream at the people I want. I'm going to drive the way that I want. I'm going to treat my children the way that I want. I'm going to treat my wife the way that I want. I'm going to use horrible language. I'm going to squash other people just so that I can attain what I want to do, and then I'm going to go to church on Sunday morning. That's deism. I will do whatever I want and sprinkle a little God on top, and I'm just fine. Our thinking must be changed. Peter says enough is enough. Stop living like the world. Think like Jesus. Live like Jesus. Be different. We have lost our salt So so Peter's like, they're going to be surprised that you don't live like them anymore. No, 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 no. no. That's not true anymore. The world looks at the church and is like, wow, they live exactly like we do. That's what they're surprised about now. Peter says, enough's enough. Reject the thinking of the world. And when you reject the thinking of the world, you are going to feel the effects. You are going to be slandered persecuted, mocked, many times to your face, but most often behind your back. You are going to come to Jesus, you're going to cling to him with everything you have, you're going to take on his thinking, you're going to continue to entrust yourself into the hands of the Father as you reject the world's way of life and you will pay for it. And if you're you're not a follower of Jesus Christ and you're listening to me right now, you're like, this dude's terrible at sales. (laughs) Uh, Now, I am sick and tired of attaching a here and now benefit to following Jesus Christ and making that most important. Yes, yes, yes. We get to live in light of our living hope. We get to have joy that is unshakable because we know who wins. But stop thinking and stop saying that I follow Jesus and suddenly my life gets good. Stop thinking that you get your best life now. That is the teaching of the original lie of Satan. You understand that, right? And when you don't get your best life now, what happens? Well, God must be holding out on me. And what you end up happening in your life, you fall, and you fall hard, and you start to question the very goodness of the God who has filled your lungs with breath and provided a Savior for you. And you're irritated and angry. You know why? Because I was told this would make my life better. You were told wrong. There is unspeakable joy that comes from the hope we have in Jesus Christ. There there is unspeakable joy joy in knowing that we are a child of God, in knowing that Jesus lives, Jesus wins, Jesus rules, Jesus reigns, and one day we will too, but that does not mean the absence of struggle. It's going to be difficult, and and this is is a goofy illustration, but maybe it'll help connect for somebody. There's a, a fellow who gets on an airplane and the person working, which I don't even know what to call them anymore, it's um, greeting people. Well, oh, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So, I hands this guy a parachute. And says, "Here, this is going to make your flight so much better." It's a little weird. The guy gets to his seat and he stows his stuff. He's holding the parachute in his hands. He's like, I got. I don't see how this is going to make my flight any better. But she, she said it would. So he buckles on the parachute. He sits in his seat. After a short amount of time, he realizes he can't sit up straight because the parachute's on the back. And and he can't lean back. His shoulders are starting to hurt like crazy. Right? And his his laptop's under the seat in front of him, and he can't reach it because he can't get it. So finally, in just a a fit of rage after hours of this, he just rips the parachute off and and throws it to the ground. and, and, And he's angry because he was told a lie. Another man gets on the airplane, he's handed a parachute, but this one is told, at some point in the flight, you're going to have to jump 25,000 feet. This parachute is going to save your life. He makes his way to his seat, goes through the same routine, he stows his belongings, he understands what the parachute's for, and he straps it on and gets it over his shoulders and he sits in his seat, you know what, he can't sit up straight, but it's Okay. He can't lean back, but he's fine with that. doesn't even notice that it hurts his, his shoulders at all. And when other people begin to make fun of him for wearing a parachute on the plane, instead of it irritating him, they're met with an impassioned plea. The jump is coming. And that's what Peter's trying to get us to understand. The jump is coming. Verse 5, he says, they will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. The jump is coming, judgment is coming, and there's nothing else that is needed for that judgment to come. Peter said it very clearly, he stands ready. Why hasn't he brought the judgment yet then? I don't know. But what I do know is every day that he doesn't return to judge the wicked is another day that he has given you to turn to Christ. You don't, don't look at God's patience in return as if he's forgotten what's actually happening. We don't know when it's going to happen, but he stands ready jump is coming. That's why we preach the gospel. He says that in verse 6. For this reason, the gospel was also preached to those who are now dead. Okay, that sounds creepy. It's really not. Peter preached, people accepted the gospel, some of them died after receiving the gospel. Which is why he says, although they may be judged in the flesh according to human standards, because Hebrews 9.27 as is appointed unto man once to die. So so that's the the very essence of what he's saying. These believers have now died, and Peter goes on and says, listen, they they may die because they're human, although they may be judged in the flesh according to human standards, but they might live in the Spirit according to God's standards. They may die because they're human, but because they're in Jesus Christ, they're going to live. And Peter says, this is the type of thinking you need to put on. This is the type of understanding, the same understanding that Jesus had, that, that the path to freedom, it, it's free, it's beautiful, it's wonderful, it's overwhelming, it's filled with joy and filled with hope, but it goes right through the forest of suffering. And it's worth it. It's worth the discomfort. It's worth the suffering, because our hope is greater than this present moment. What Peter says is, our hope outlasts death. Don't forget why the gospel was preached to you. It wasn't preached to you so that you could live a perfect, problemless life with a huge bank account and no tragedies. It wasn't preached to you so that you could walk through life as popular as could be, a little a sort of demigod, and as people look at you and think, wow, this this guy's something. The gospel was preached to you because the, the world's broken. Sin affects all of us. And we need a rescue because the jump's coming. The gospel was preached to you so that when you go through difficult times of suffering and tragedy, that the people around you would ask you, how in the world are you holding it together? Where does your hope come from? The gospel was preached to you so that when the end of life comes, and it will, we're able to stand before God and based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ, live forever in his presence. Jesus knew the path of freedom was through the forest of suffering. Jesus in his understanding and his thinking understood that it was about way more than just the present moment. Look what the author of Hebrews says. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. We keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross. The joy was not the cross. The joy was not the suffering. (laughs) The joy was that he gets to present you and I blameless before the throne of God. He understood that freedom only came and was perfected in his suffering. Suffering is real. It will come. May we have the strength and grace to approach it with the same thinking, the same understanding. Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here. Man, I love them. Some of them sitting here have absolutely no concept of what suffering is. And so I pray that you would spare them. You would protect them. That you would carry them. Father, there are those sitting here who have gone through suffering that I can't even begin to understand. Lord, I ask that you would breathe wind into their sails. That you would fill them full of hope and joy yet again. There are those here sitting this morning who haven't the foggiest idea what it means to follow Jesus Christ. So I pray that you would rescue them where they sit right now. That they would cry out their heart's voice. That they're a sinner and they need a savior. Father, that they would not be looking for uh, immediate blessing, immediate victory. But Father, instead, they would be looking for a salvation that will last for all of eternity. Lord, I, I pray as we walk through the forest of suffering in these days that we would remember who holds our hand. God, you're good. And we can trust you. And we're thankful. For it's in Jesus' good name I pray.